He's involved in a number of businesses. He's a great role model. Telling it like it is. Giving you both sides of the story. This is Cats at Night. Great American, a great New Yorker. Now, here's John Katsimatidis. Well, this is John Katsimatidis. This is Cats at Night, the number one show at 5 o'clock. And uh, a very, very sad day today. Uh, uh, we have a tragic loss. Uh, Ivana Trump uh, just passed away uh, about an hour ago. And and uh, I've known her for a long time, and it's so very sad. And uh, uh, anybody in the uh, in the studio that wants to comment, uh, Judge Weinberg? She's a, I had the occasion to meet her a couple of times. A very elegant, a lovely lady, very down-to-earth, very pleasant, and was always trying to help the people of the city of New York. Uh, Ed Cox? I never had the privilege of, of meeting her, so but uh, I, I understand that she was a very fine person. Well, Donald Trump well, also he put out a, a statement regarding his ex-wife, and he said she was a wonderful, beautiful, and amazing woman who led a great and inspirational life. Her pride and joy were her three children, Donald Jr., Ivanka, and Eric, and she was so proud of them, and we were also so proud of her. Uh, when she wrote her book, I interviewed her for Cat's uh, Roundtable, and uh, I look forward that uh, uh, I've instructed our people to uh, get it, and uh, we're going to replay it on Cat's Roundtable this uh, Sunday morning. And uh, now she, the interview was an excellent interview. How proud she was uh, of her children, and and uh, I had tears in my eyes at that point. And. Uh, it was an excellent interview, so I look forward to replaying it on Sunday. I, I understand uh, we have uh, Mr. Dershowitz on the line, Lydia. That's right. Uh, Professor Dershowitz, just a couple of decades at Harvard Law. He's a leading constitutional lawyer in the country. He also has another great book out, The Price of Principle, Why Integrity is Worth the Consequences. Welcome back to Cats at Night, Professor Dershowitz. Well, thank you. I didn't know uh, Mrs. Trump, but of course I know her three children, and she really did a good job in in raising them. It's probably not easy to be in the spotlight the way she was when she was Donald Trump's wife and thereafter, but I know her three children, and I know she'd be very proud of what uh, they've done with their lives and, and, and their their own families, etc. And so uh, may she rest in peace. Alan, it's uh, Richard Weinberg. I want to talk to you about what's there are a couple of big issues going on. One is the attack on the Supreme Court of the United States. Now, some of the left-wing ideologues are trying to push the idea that there should be an catch this an elected Supreme Court of the United States, subject to their decisions being reviewed by the United Nations. What do you think about that, Professor? It's the most absurd, anti-American, ignorant approach I've ever heard from radical Democrats, and that's a pretty, pretty low bar when you think about that. But the idea that you have a judiciary that is supposed to be a check and balance on the elected branches of government to themselves be elected uh, would eliminate essentially the judiciary of the United States. Uh, Look, many of these folks on the hard left would like to abolish the Supreme Court. I have to tell you, back when I was a young man, there were signs all over the country, impeach Earl Warren, impeach William Douglas. Back in those days, some of the people on the right wanted to abolish the Supreme Court after Brown versus Board of Education and some of the other cases. Now people on the left want to 
do it, the hard left. The Supreme Court must be preserved. Nine justices, judicial review, no overruling Supreme Court decisions. Amend the Constitution if you don't like a Supreme Court decision. But the Supreme Court ain't broke. Even if we disagree with decisions that they rendered this term, it's an institution that contributes enormously to the welfare of the United States and the rights of its citizens. And, I, and there's another issue I want to raise with you. You being the, the learned professor from Harvard Law School for all those many years and one of the most respected constitutional lawyers in our history. Thank you. You have a situation where a lecturer at Harvard Law School is saying that all the judges who voted to rescind Roe versus Wade, the six of them who voted that way, should be challenged, gone after in public, and never have a moment's peace. Do you know about that? Well, it's what's happening to me, obviously. It's the same thing. It's why I wrote my book, The Price of Principle, because I don't have a moment of peace. I go to Martha's Vineyard, and people yell at me uh, while I'm having lunch, when I'm having dinner. Uh, because I represented the president of the United States, which was my constitutional duty to do, the hard left is becoming uh, impossible when it comes to uh, allowing people to live decent lives. Uh, These justices, look, I disagree with that decision, but they did it on the basis of principle. Justice Alito is an extraordinarily principled man. So is Justice Kavanaugh. So are some of the others who I know. The idea that they should be disrupted in their lives, their children, their families, that the majority leader of the Senate should make a statement that could actually serve as an encouragement to people to come and assassinate a justice of the Supreme Court the way somebody tried to do with Judge Justice Kavanaugh. It's just disgraceful. They just are anti-institutionalists. They want to bring down the country. And we must oppose them, particularly we in the Democratic Party, the center of the Democratic Party. We're the ones who have an obligation to stand up against the hard, hard left of our party. President Biden is doing that today as we speak in Israel. He is standing up against the hard left. He is condemning the Ilan Omer's and the AOC's and saying that this administration will never accept a BDS or calling Israel genocidal. There has to be more of that from within the Democratic Party. I don't believe this is that Cox professor. I don't believe that the President Biden has condemned the protest outside the, nope. uh, the justices' homes, even though there is a federal law that prohibits it, which the Justice Department is not is not enforcing. I agree with you. The the and I've written about this and spoken about it. The press secretary said they had the right. To do it. Well, you know, the Nazis had the right to march through Skokie, and the racists had a, had a right to yell in, 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 in Virginia, Jews will not replace us. That doesn't make it right. The president should condemn those actions and say, look, you have a right to do it. We have the right to condemn you for exercising that right. You don't have to exercise every right in the wrong way which is what these folks, I think, are doing. And I just, as a First Amendment person, I want to condemn in the strongest terms these protests, just as I condemn protests on the hard left that uh, make people, uh, uh, intimidate people for taking different views and protests on the hard right. Nobody should be protesting in the manner in which these folks are protesting justices of the Supreme Court. Professor Dershowitz, Harvard, is now being accused of kind of having an anti-Semitic sentiment. 
And the latest example of this trend, the editorial board of the Harvard Crimson endorsed the movement to boycott, divest and sanction the Jewish state in an April 29th editorial. What's your reaction to hearing about that? Well, I wrote an opposite editorial and they refused to publish it. They refused to publish my opposite editorial, even though I've been at Harvard for 50 years and had written numerous times for the Crimson. Finally, they agreed to publish a short letter. I condemned it, and then I published my op-ed elsewhere. I don't think Harvard is guilty of anti-Semitism. I think the president of Harvard is, who's leaving soon, is a very decent man who has condemned anti-Semitism, as did his predecessors. There are elements at Harvard that are anti-Semitic. The current Crimson board is loaded with anti-Semites, and that's why I have urged Harvard not to allow the Crimson to use the name Harvard. Let them use the word Crimson. Let them say Cambridge Crimson, but let them be disassociated from Harvard because nobody should confuse the Crimson with what Harvard stands for. What was your reaction to that, Professor? To to, To, to take away the use of the name Harvard Crimson. I wish we did that. I would like to see. I don't any longer call it the Harvard Crimson. It's the Crimson. And, uh, you know, there are places in Harvard Square that call itself the Harvard Pizza Shop. But nobody associates the pizza with Harvard, but they do associate the Crimson with Harvard. People don't realize the Crimson doesn't get a nickel from Harvard. Harvard doesn't give them office space. They are a private corporation and can do whatever they want and say whatever they want. But they use the name Harvard, and that's wrong. And I would urge people to people who are alumni of of the Crimson to stop contributing to the Crimson. Don't contribute to hate and bigotry and anti-Semitism. Well, Professor Dershowitz. Well, that's, certain, that's the right thing to say. Yep. I mean, a, thank you, Professor, for straightening out. I never knew that. Yeah. I always thought it was part of Harvard because it said the Harvard Crimson. Of course, most people think that, and that's what's wrong with it. That's why there should be no use of the name Harvard in the Crimson. Let it go on with its bigotry. Let it adopt the attitudes of the Ku Klux Klan and Al-Qaeda but let it not be associated with me as a professor there or with other people who have gone to Harvard and have contributed and love Harvard. The Crimson has nothing to do with Harvard. Good to know. I, I, yeah, you you kind of see this uh, trend among a lot of so-called journalists, uh, Professor Dershowitz. That oh, yeah. <laughs> they're yeah. very beyond left-leaning. I saw. I was listening to Ari Fleischer, and he was talking about how he did a – uh, a survey, and they found out that among the press corps, it's like it's staggering how many Democrats you have. It's like twelve to one, Democrats to Republican. I think that's what's wrong. And then he also said that when the, a lot of the journalists think that their job is to affect change, to move the needle, to swing the pendulum. As a reporter myself, as a, somebody who studied journalism, I was told to just report the facts, and it's up to the American people to move the needle. What do you think? Well, that's that's why I'm suing CNN, why I'm going forward and spending my own money suing CNN, because they doctored a tape of mine where I said a president could be impeached if he committed illegal, unlawful or corrupt conduct. And CNN said I said a president couldn't be impeached. They took out the words illegal, unlawful and corrupt and had their commentators say that I think a president can do anything, kill somebody fake an election um, and uh, engage in an extortion or bribery. That's what they said on CNN. And they're going to pay for it because we're bringing a lawsuit and we're not backing down. 
Well, I would not want to be on the other side of the courtroom against you, Professor Dershowitz. Thank you so much for all of your wise words and uh, keep on fighting the good fight. And how can we get I your book, my uh, Professor? And, uh, correct. The Price of Principle. Yeah, and I think you'll like it because it really deals with how difficult it is to be principled in today's world, but it's worth it. Right, and it's available where all books are sold, yeah. correct, sir? Amazon, and it's doing very well on Amazon, so please read it. Okay, great. Well, now Thank to another so uh, an, another accomplished author and guest, a frequent guest here in Cats at Night, former NYPD Commissioner Bill Bratton. He just uh, published a great article in the Atlantic Magazine. Police reform needs to come from within. Commissioner Bratton, I couldn't agree more. Good to be with all of you this evening. Tell us about your article. Uh, well, I was approached by The Atlantic to write an article with my perspective on what had been going on these last couple of years and what needed to uh, be done to move forward a more uh, successful way. I think we all fully understand, particularly in this state, how the criminal justice reform movement, bail reform, has been a disaster in the sense that it has led to more crime, as many of the criminal justice reform initiatives of the, uh, the left, if you will, the woke left, have been. Uh, despite all of their uh, efforts, uh, the whole idea of law enforcement, the whole idea of the criminal justice system is to reduce crime, to protect the innocent. And they have failed completely. So I was more than happy to write the article. It's uh, gone online at the Atlantic uh, uh, website. And in it, I, I address a number of issues, the importance of uh, technology, for example, and the uh, criminal justice reform uh, crowd, they want to fight DNA. They want to fight uh, shot spotter technology. They want to fight all the technologies can help to solve crime because they're concerned that it, it has uh, racial implications. Uh, it's also the idea that uh, we want cops in the neighborhood, neighborhood police officers. And where do the communities that most want those police officers come from? The minority neighborhoods. So it's ironic that the progressive left uh, are basically neglecting their own constituents. So I write about all of this in the column, that it's uh, uh, intended to uh, really, once and for all, let my position be known. I support broken windows. Why? Because the public, when they call 311 and 911, what do they want us to address? The broken windows, the noisy barbecue party going on all night, 200 people. We've seen that just recently several of those barbecue parties with mass shootings. They had one where they indicate 17 different weapons we used in a shooting incident at a barbecue party going on at 3 o'clock in the morning. No, in terms of, uh, it's, it's, I, I think, uh, not just because uh, I basically prepared it, but uh, it's, it's a great article because it really lays it out uh, in, in common sense language. Well, Commissioner uh, Judge Richard Weinberg, it seemed to me as I looked at the article, you were making two major points. One, you, you, and the big thesis is the police department has to be reformed from with inside if, but not attack the institution, deal with the bad conduct, but don't attack the, the police and build better, better uh, connections to the community. Could you explain those theses? Yeah, exactly. Well, the idea is that so much of the attacks against the police, do away with the police, defund the police, uh, uh, have an effect on police morale, on police effectiveness, on police efficiency. Uh, hammer the police for mistakes they make, but don't hammer the profession. Don't paint with the broad brush. And the irony is that uh, all these attacks on the police, what has it done? It has led to more crime as we have lost police. New York City has lost 2,000 police officers in the last year. 
1,500 retirements, 500 resignations, fewer police to police the streets, and to staff up the neighborhood policing that is so essential to developing trust and relationships. So, so many of the attacks on the far left end up playing to the far right because the far right is in the position to see, uh, we told you so, that uh, what I'm trying to do is get people to the center. I'm a centrist. I've worked for Republican mayors, Giuliani. I've worked for Democratic mayors in Los Angeles. Uh, I'm in the center that uh, I call it as I see it. And right now, the left and the right both are causing phenomenal problems for American police in limiting our effectiveness. And the reforms I talk about, you're familiar with them. We talk about CompStat. That was developed from within the NYPD. We talk about precision policing developed within the NYPD. Community policing developed within policing. So we know how to do this stuff. Uh, and stop attacking us and let us get the job done. And when we do make mistakes, when we do screw up, fine, hammer us for those. But don't just hammer us every day, day in and out. Because what you do is you then neglect all the successes. And one of the successes in New York City, 90% reduction in homicides, 80% reduction in serious crime for 20 straight years. And all of that was obfuscated with the idea that, oh, the bad old police, that uh, they're, they're doing nothing good, they're doing everything wrong. No, it's time for uh, the public to start standing up for the police instead of attacking them all the time. And the media, too, for that matter. And Commissioner Bratton, I was just reading some NYPD statistics that their seizure of illegal guns is way up, but only 20 percent of those arrested with illegal guns are held. I mean, that is just a staggering statistic, and I can't imagine how frustrating. In my article, I talk about 60,000 people arrested for felony crime. Of the 60,000, only 3 percent ended up with jail time. Wow. Think of that. Wow. 60,000 people who committed serious felony crime, including a lot of those gun crimes you're talking about, but only 3% ended up serving jail time. Uh, and chances are that jail time was pretty much de minimis. No, uh, we've got a, a criminal justice system that's uh, been tipped upside down. Uh, it can be corrected, but it's really going to take the public to really figure out that uh, by constantly attacking the police, berating them, denigrating them, that, uh, uh, you know, you're going to get police service deficient for what you're expecting from a police force. And the NYPD, the NYPD delivered for 20 straight years. Did it have its flaws? Did it have its, uh, its problems? It certainly did. But in pointing those out, you basically uh, uh, totally covered up all the successes, all those people who didn't die, all those people who weren't raped, all those homes that weren't burglarized, all those people who weren't uh, robbed, uh, all those people who don't feel safe in their neighborhoods. No, they don't. Well, thank you so much, Commissioner Bratton, and come back anytime. Thank you, sir. Always happy to be with you. All the best. Thank Thank you. you. Now, we still got a great show for everyone. Keep it right here. We're going to have an exclusive interview with Patrick Byrne. He's a former uh, Overstock CEO. He'll talk to us about his uh, possible meeting with the January 6th committee. Also, Vito Fasella, Steve Moore on the economy, Dr. Mikolos, the latest on COVID, why it won't just go away already. Keep it right here. Cats at night. You're commuting home with Cats at Night. Now, here's John Katsimatidis on 77 WABC. Breaking news, WABC. Steve Bannon, as well as former Overstock CEO Patrick Byrne, will be testifying in a closed-door meeting with the January 6th committee tomorrow. We spoke to Byrne earlier today in an exclusive interview. Take a listen. 
And here in studio with us, we have Patrick Byrne. You're the former founder of Overstock.com, and now you're working with the America Project, correct, with General Michael Flynn? Yes, Lydia. And, and tell us, you've been, we've been following you in the news. You've been pushing to testify before the January 6th committee. You were a part of a lot of these meetings. Tell me what's going on. Well, it is kind of funny that because it's been known and in the report in the press, I was in the infamous December 18th meeting, four of us in the Oval Office, uh, four and a half hours. I was part of that entire conversation. History is going to, in 100 years, they should be analyzing that conversation and what was said and what happened. So talk, first, that meeting, what was that meeting about? Talking about? It, well, I will also mention I was there on January 5th with the senators and congressmen briefing them. Uh, so I know everything. And even Mike Flynn and Roger Stone have come out and said, I don't know. To, they've said publicly, I don't know why they're speeding us. Patrick Byrne was in the middle of it and knows more than us. Just ask Patrick Byrne. J6 committee for nine months. I took out ads saying, hey, why don't you have me in? I'll clean this all up for you. Uh, so, I ha- so, uh, you know, so I can t- say exactly what was discussed in the December 18th meeting. And I'm the guy who actually laid out the options to the president. The I laid out they I had practiced it in my room, so I know exactly what I said and how I laid it out and everything. So the uh uh that that's what's going on and the same with the January fifth. Now a lot of people are saying that the guards opened up the doors to let the people in. Yeah, there's videos of it. And those those doors are twenty thousand pounds each. So ten- nobody broke down the doors to get in. No, okay. that was built, rebuilt in the fifties, so tanks could occupy Wall Street. You can't get into the Congress. That was they absolutely opened these huge and, magnetic and, doors. And the other thing they said, they, oh, it's an insurrection. I mean, to me, an insurrection. You need if all three hundred people should have their muskets. I'm joking, or guns. And I understand the FBI report says there's only one gun found among all of them. Yep. And here's something I'll lay, since you're asking me that, I'll lay a bombshell on you. The militias reached out to me two days before that. I was seeing the Trump Hotel, and a man showed up at my door. A guy, tough-looking guy I didn't know, somehow got to my door in the Trump Hotel. And I stepped outside to talk to him. He didn't know that I had a forty-five behind my back, because I didn't know it was coming to my door. And I stepped outside, and he's, his mission was to tell me I'm here from the militias, from such and such a militia. And we want you to know you're the, you're the only guy we listen to outside our militia. And you say the word, we'll do. But we're coming to town tomorrow with 10,000 10, people are coming in with long guns. And we're going to come in and take the city. And I said, sir, you're saying that your people will take an order from me? And he said, yep, well, you're the only guy. I said, then my order is absolutely not under any circumstance, not a single weapon, no guns, nothing. I would be so disappointed if anybody brings – they tell me that if I had not done that, there would have been 10,000 long guns, rifles and stuff. I didn't realize – I thought they were talking about taking over the city. I didn't realize they were talking about taking a building. Uh, but that's actually – I don't think I've said that publicly. That's probably the kind of thing that will get you arrested. Breaking mo- news. <laughs> oh, my God. The militia showed up, and even since then, the militias once in a while – my life has become like Fight Club. You know, Fight Club, when you go and some bartender comes up and talks to the Edward Norton – Everywhere I go, not everywhere, but once in a while, certainly every few weeks, somebody somewhere will, will, who sees me will come over and bring me a message from a militia. Why did they kill that poor gal? Uh, I think that the uh, Ashley Babbitt. Yes. There's a heck of a movie out that has completely changed my mind. Uh, Ashley Babbitt, I think, well, a, a new video has gotten, has become available in the last month. She was a, I didn't realize this, she was a police officer. 
She was in the military, a police officer, military police for 14 years. She was very familiar with all the procedures. And there's a video that no one has seen before that shows she saw this crowd coming. She ran up to those cops to warn them, you don't have enough. You need reinforcements. So, and then the guy comes up. They, next lifted, her, they lifted her up in place. like. Yep. It's almost like they, well, even worse. Here's something you'll find out. You know, the man next to her had a motorcycle helmet. He was bashing the glass next to her. She tried to stop him. She ended up, there's a tape no one has seen yet or until she punches him from behind, knocks off his glasses. He's Antifa. That guy has turned out to be in the guy who was standing there breaking the glass. She that that started it all she and she punched him and tried to stop him. Then she then there is this weird thing happens where she gets held up and a police officer on the other side. Now, the normal procedure is they're supposed to give a verbal warming warning, then make themselves seen. Then they have a whole ladder. They can go from pepper spray to, uh, you know, a, a taser to a hand to a baton to a handgun. Now, they have the authority to jump that scale, but they're supposed to go up that spectrum. That guy with no vis, she never saw him, didn't say a thing. And he, he from about this far away, just very carefully aims and pops one into her throat. I mean, that is, that's got to be murder in my eyes. I mean, I don't know how you feel about it. I do. I think, she, I, think he, she, I think there's some chance that the man next to her, the Antifa guy who was breaking the glass, there may have been some communication to say, kill this woman. I don't know. When you see this video, there's something crazy going on, but there's a police, that policeman seems to be taking an order, and then he steps forward and picks her out, and it's very clear. He picks her out and pops, and now, from Patrick about this Byrne, far. I want to ask you, in, during any of these conversations with President Trump on December 18th, on January 5th, was there, was there any talk about, let's take over the Capitol, let's, let's get violent, let's get, a, you know... Because that's what the January 6th committee is trying to paint. We heard Cassidy Hutchinson saying that Trump wanted to go and allow people armed to, to come into the Capitol. Is any of that true? Absolutely. I know exactly what was said in that room in that four and a half hours. Not only is – and I am saving – I mean, I'm going to be – well, I hope to get in front of the J6 committee at some point soon. And I will tell them the exact story. But no, Trump was absolutely anything but – so, why, why would they let you in? It seems like they're being very prejudiced who they do let in. Well, they're, they haven't want to let me in because they're – well, it could be because they're trying to create a narrative, and I know a truth. And my truth is maybe 30 degrees off their narrative, so they don't want to hear it. I actually think there is some mischief. I think there was some mischief, and it traces back to some, some Republican elements who are anti-Trumpers may be involved. I don't know. There is some. I was close enough to know that on January 5th and 6th, there was something going on behind the scenes that was a, a setup. But Trump was not trying was not to Trump. incite an insurrection. Absolutely not. In fact, Trump let me know. He said like three times because we were saying there's a solution that we can get to the bottom of this in two weeks and really in three days. We just need to look at six hard drives. And give us in three days, we'll have your answer, sir. And if we don't find what we think we're going to find, you're going to need to concede very quickly. He couldn't tell me quickly enough. Patrick, you have no idea how easy it will be for me to concede. You see there, he pointed to the South Lawn of the White House. He said there's, on January 20, there'll be a helicopter, a Marine One landing there. It'll be the easiest thing in the world for me to walk in, get in. I will never spend a day in this town again. I've got my golf courses. I've got my friends. My life is going to be great. But, Patrick, can I really do that if I think that this election has been st- stolen and there may be a foreign nation involved? Can I re- so it seemed to me a perfectly appropriate moral deliberation he was having. He was anything but some tyrant trying to hold on to power. I think he was 
quite ready to go. But he felt that – I mean, I think he was really – I think his own, he was very defeated by his own staff. They really let him down, and they weren't fighting for him. And I, he, was very, he was sad and ready to go, but he was saying, how can I go if I think that this has been Was great? it the presentation, the way he, he did it? You know, I, I found, look, I know Donald for, for President Trump. I always want to call him President Trump for 40 years. And he does make a lot of mistakes. You know, you know what I, you know, every day, Every day he makes new enemies for no reason sometimes. Mm-hmm. He, his style. You know, I did not vote for him. Just so you know, I didn't vote for him either time. I'm a libertarian, a small L libertarian. I've never voted Democrat or Republican for president. And I said some very nasty things about him before he became president. When I was first in that Oval Office, he, the first thing he said was, you know, he was very gentle. He said, Patrick, I know you said some not very nice things about me. And I, before I was elected, and I said, sir, I did. I did about Hillary, too. My feelings have warmed about you somewhat since you're in office, but this has nothing to do with that. I'm here because I think that something happened on November 3rd. And uh, frankly, if I thought that they had done it to Biden, I'd be in Biden's office right now. I'm here because I, you know, I have my thoughts about the election. So he was anything but how he's he, – and I actually became quite fond of him in, a four, in over four hours. He's a very different man than I ever saw. He's nothing at all like the – the guy that, the, you know, he was not a, he's just not, he was a very gentler and s- more thoughtful and much more intelligent guy than I had any idea. He's a very bright guy. Boy, they never talk, he's very smart, isn't he? Well, I'm going to tell you a story that uh, was, t- that, uh, th- that's known to a lot of people. His secretary, he, he would, in the old days before Twitter, he would write a nasty note to somebody. And his secretary in New York, uh, who I know very well, I'm not going to mention her name. Uh, would would type out the letter and would hold it for 24 hours. Huh. 24 hours later, she would go to him, uh, Mr. Trump, you really want to send this? I, I don't think you should. And he looked at it and said, hey, and we tear it up. <laughs> but the problem was there was nobody there at 3 o'clock in the morning when, when he would Twitter. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's a true story. That makes perfect sense. So I can, given that our nation seems to be close to, I think the J6 committee thinks that I'm going to be adversarial if I ever get to see them. And I wish they understood I'm not. I, although we don't agree about what happened on November 3rd, there's very le- I think that they have a legitimate purpose and de- figure out what happened from November 4th to J- January 6th. And there's a bunch of blank spots they need to know. And if I, I'm hoping that if they know the truth, it can maybe diffuse the situation. Well... Thank you so much for uh, coming into uh, WABC. And, uh, I don't know uh, if you know, interview. Patrick Byrne, we're all about telling the truth. Right? Right. That's what John is all about, the J- truth, justice, in the American way. I know that's what you're about, John. You have a yeah. great reputation. You too, Lydia, and I'm honored to be on your show. And uh, we, if you do testify, we'd like you to come back and, and talk about it. I'd be honored, sir. Thank you. Thank you so much. John Welcome back to the John Katzmatidis Cats at Night show. That was some interview with uh, Patrick Byrne, and we have learned that he is testifying tomorrow in a closed-door meeting with the January 6th committee. What will come of it, we don't know yet, but he will be testifying. John, that was one hell of an interview you did. Yes, it was, and um, thank you for your help on that one. Uh, And uh, we'll find out tomorrow. Look, uh, I think the American people, there's a lot of things that happened that we're not getting the 100% truth. And that's all we're interested in is the 100% truth. And and um, it's just worrisome that uh, 
we're missing a few things. It, John, it's it, it's hard to get the truth out when you don't have the opposition. They're also in the back and forth between them and the cross-examination. It's just not there. And so many committee. interviews are done behind closed doors, so you never know what's said, as opposed to when they come out and they spin it before the cameras. They just take pieces of That's it. That's exactly you don't right. Know the they rest. take it out of context. Exactly. Yep. Well, on the line with us is another guy who tells the truth and tells it like it is. One of us here at Cats at Night, frequent guest, Vito Fisella, the Staten Island Borough President. How are you, Vito? I'm doing great. Good evening, everybody. So tell us about the Staten Island Ferry. I mean, this is some exciting news. Uh, well, I thought we were going to talk about the Beagles. Oh, you want to talk about the Beagles? Okay, oh, we'll talk right. about the Beagles. I want to talk about the 4,000 Beagles. Okay, good. Sorry. No, don't be sorry. Uh, I know so many of us are animal lovers, and John especially. Uh, and for those who may not be aware, there was a facility closed in uh, in Virginia recently, and there were about 60 days or so for about 4,000 dogs, beagles specifically, that need to be adopted. So we started reaching out to some of our animal shelters today here in Staten Island and other parts of the city to help uh, the National Humane Society uh, get those beagles adopted because if they don't, um, you know, they will end in a not so nice demise. And uh, it's, it's, it was a really rough story about how they were abused and uh, just lived in unsanitary conditions. A bunch of young puppies died. So this is uh, pulls at the heartstrings of anybody who's an animal lover, and we're just trying to help out a little bit. Are they getting medical attention, Vito? They, yeah, they are. There's a whole process that's being taken place now, and ultimately when they're adopted through shelters across the country, they'll be vaccinated, neutered, spayed, what have you. And, uh, you know, some of them were in very rough shape, and they remain in rough shape, as you can imagine. But uh, we're just trying to help, like anybody else across this country, when, when people are in need or animals are in need, we, we try to help out. And that's what we're, we're focusing on right now. As I understand it, beagles are very trainable. They're used for hunting a lot of things where you need to have uh, dogs that are, that are obedient and trained very well. Yeah, Ed, and, and this is, uh, you know, a lot of people may not know, but there's still a lot of animal testing going on for a var- variety of reasons. So animals are used for testing on products, uh, for medical devices, biotech, uh, what have you. And the reason why beagles are the dominant uh, species, uh, breed, I should say, is because they're so do- docile and, and calm. And the exact reasons why people like them are the exact reasons why they're used for animal testing. And you know, that debate has been going on, frankly, for thousands of years about using animals for testing for products and science and medicine, and it still goes on. But fortunately, in recent years, there have been efforts to to basically tone down the amount of animal research and with the advent of robotics and, and other 3D printers, et cetera, um, we're seeing less of it and more humane and ethical treatment of animals. So what can people, Vito, so what can people do if they're interested in adopting one of these dogs? So the first, right now, it's being uh, really the the quarterback of this is the National Humane Society. They can go to their website. And as I uh, mentioned at the outset, we're trying to work with some of our shelters here. We have an animal care center on Staten Island that probably places a little over a 1,000 animals a year, and it's coordinated with the New York City Animal Care Center that probably places about ten to 11,000 animals a year up for adoption and shelter 
So uh, folks who can who are interested in adopting now can reach out directly to the Humane Society, and we're going to see if it makes sense for us to be sort of a, a shelter that people around here, or at least in this region, uh, can get. Well, you're doing a great I, thing. I, I tell you guys, I mean, I love animals. I love dogs. And to use them for tests like that, it's just, it just breaks my heart. Well, there's about 60,000, you know, throughout the United States and dogs. And obviously the number one animal that's often tested, well, there's a reason why this expression exists. It's a guinea pig. So guinea pig is the most tested animal for different purposes. And, you know, for years, it was just, hey, you know, screw them. Uh, it is what it is. But I, unfortunately, in recent years, there's been a lot of focus and emphasis to minimize and reduce and replace and refine the process of testing animals, especially for uh, personal care products or cosmetics. You know, that was a big area, and there are states moving in the direction to ban animal testing if you're going to use it for uh, exclusively for cosmetics, which I think is a positive sign. Say, say Vito, why, why not, you know, there's a movie about 100 Dalmatians, right? Why not turn them movie stars? 4,000 yeah. beagles. 4,000 beagles. Well, I know we're, we're a, lot of, uh, a lot of animal lovers in and around. I know people, when they hear an animal that's in need or, or desperate for care or, or a new home. Uh, so p- really part of this today is just to let folks know that this, there is a need, and, and the window is about 60 days. So the clock started ticking recently and, and you know our goal is to try to get all those 4,000 beagles adopted within the next 60 days. So Vito I was looking at a study recently and regarding a COVID positivity rate Staten Island has the lowest infection rate out of all the boroughs. Well we're, that's a good <laughs> sign uh, I, I think we, we've gone through now the sixth wave of COVID we you and I and we all have been talking for the last couple of years it, it hit us hard but at the same time, we need to get our lives back together, start living again. We are, you know, back, and we need to get stronger. I know John talked about the tourism effect in New York. We got to get folks back to New York City, and deal with, you know, deal with the COVID as it is. Isolate whatever you have to do, but we can't destroy our economy once again and shut this whole thing down. So let's let's focus on the positive. And I'm glad that the COVID testing you on know. Staten Island is, is is low right now. Uh, Vito, I'm seeing a headline, and uh, I haven't read the whole story, uh, that um, Mayor Adams must have been listening to us talk about uh, uh, the ferries, and uh, he wants the ferries to exist, he wants the ferries to, to expand, but he's going to increase the price to the, on the ferries. Is that going to affect Staten Island at all? Um, I, you know, I was actually supposed to be with the mayor this morning. I was, I wanted to be with him. I just something uh, had a conflict. So, uh, I think it's good news, right? Because the high, we're talking not about the Staten Island ferry, which is free and one of the largest tourist attractions in the country, but we're talking about the network of high-speed ferries, one that you can take right from your ballpark, John, in St. George to downtown Manhattan, 18 minutes, and be in Midtown in about 34 minutes. So that's a great alternative to sitting on the Gowanus Expressway or the BQE, or the Verizon, wherever it may be. Uh, he, I think they raised the price in part uh, to, to really, as you know better than anyone in the business, you've got to pad up the revenue side of business. But uh, buried in that is the $4 is really for the one- or two-time users like t- tourists. 
But if you continue to use it on a regular basis, you can buy 10 packs for, say, twenty-seven fifty, and it still remains about $2.75 a ride. And to me, that's that's a bargain these days if you can do it. It, it is a bargain. It is a bargain. Uh, you know, when, when there was a nickel, my father used to do our vacation in the summertime to go on the Staten Island Ferry and go back and forth five times. <laughs> that was, you know, a lot of folks don't realize that Staten Island, and particularly South and Midland Beaches, were heavy vacation areas. Areas of hotels lined the boardwalks and uh, rides, and people from all over Brooklyn and Manhattan used to take that ferry and end up in South Beach and Midland Beach for vacation. So it is still iconic. And with respect to ferries, we we would love to see more of it because Lord knows there's too many suffering commuters who have to sit in traffic all day long sometimes, an hour and a half, two hours. Why not enjoy the luxury of a nice high-speed ferry uh, to ease your mind and to get you back home to your family sooner rather than later? And it's good for the environment. And you don't have to worry about COVID because you're out in the fresh air. That's right. It's good for public health and it's good for the environment. I think it's a win-win all around, and as I say, we there are those who want to undo it, right? The story's out. They try to uh, torpedo it, but uh, I've, I've already indicated that we need more of this. Let's figure out how to be creative, and let's get people out of their cars, out of, out of other forms of mass transit, and get them in, as you say, Richard, some clean and reliable forms of, uh, of transportation. Well, thank you so much, Vito Fasella, Staten Island Borough President, and uh, come back anytime. Thank you so much, everybody. Have a great evening. Appreciate it. Thank you, Vito. Well, we're now. Go ahead. We're waiting for uh, Dr. Mikolos to call in momentarily, and there was some kind of breaking news on the medical front, and that's what we're going to talk to Dr. Mikolos about. Not only is COVID infections rising all over New York City, thankfully Staten Island has one of the lowest, but I believe Manhattan, it's about like 34% COVID positivity rate. Hospitalizations are up across the country. Now we're hearing that the COVID. The variant has mutated so much, Dr. Mikolos, that it's evading some sometimes Paxlovid, which is that antiviral medication similar to uh, Tamiflu. Uh, Dr. Mikolos, what do you know? Well, what's happening is that we have a virus, as we've said on WABC the last few weeks, which mutates more rapidly. And all viruses learn that they need to be contagious and get more contagious because they want to survive and they have to seek out the hotel host. But they learn also not to keep killing their human host hotel, and that's why it's been a little less lethal. And we still have 300 people dying a day. 40% of them are fully vaccinated. The study out of Wild Cornell Qatar Medicine showed that the people who have had previous infection have the most powerful protection and immunity, and that may help uh, us have blood tests that will show the immunity so they won't have to get rid of a lot of nurses and police who are leaving New York state area, the tri-state area by the droves because of a vaccine situation. So now we know that natural immunity is far better for all the variants, which is good to know. But vaccines are still great because they prevent severe disease and they prevent help prevent death. The other thing is that uh, the FDA announced, Peter Marks from the FDA last week, that he said, well, guys, the uh, current vaccines are for the original Alpha and Delta uh, variants, and they don't really work against the Omicron BA4 and BA5 subvariants. So they announced that they're pushing the companies, to, and we need another warp speed to get variant-specific vaccines. Just like every year, we update the flu vaccine with three different variants of the flu. We're going to have a variant he's asking for with the original one and the two new BA4, BA5, which are much more contagious. 
as far as the antivirals are concerned. The trick is, just like Tamiflu, a lot of people aren't getting treated right away. If you take it within the first 72 hours, it, it works a lot. What's even better is the IV uh, antibody, the Viltemovab, created by Eli Lilly through Veer Pharma by a fellow named George Skangos out in San Francisco. And that does is it goes with a ready-made antibody, so you don't have to make your own. And it caps off the spike protein, which is like the little key of the virus that enters your cell and blocks it from entering. So for our audience, if you get sick, you get tested positive, you have any risk factors, you're over uh, 70 or you're obese or you have diabetes or you have uh, other lung problems or autoimmune disorders, cancer, transplant patients, please immediately ask for the antibodies and get it right away to cap off the uh, virus and prevent it from multiplying because the first five days are critical because those are called the viral replication phase. After that is called the inflammatory phase. And what you want to do is you want to treat it why it's not a cold because, as we said, yes, you'll probably survive it with the current therapies, but you don't want to also end up with long-haul COVID syndrome, which has all kinds of cognitive issues. People would have racing hearts, what's called tachycardia, and you want to avoid that because one in five people are getting that. And some hospitals have even set up what's called long-haul COVID centers. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Mikolos, for always uh, giving us the truth and telling it like it is. Thank you so much for all that you do, sir. Thank you very much. And keep thinking positive and testing negative. And thanks for always getting the truth out on the Cats Roundtable. Thank you so much. Now, coming thank back. You so much. We'll be talking to Steve Moore. He was uh, President Trump's top economic advisor. He's going to tell us what the heck is going on with the economy. Could we be seeing another major Fed rate hike? Keep it right here. Cats at night. Handling legal matters is stressful. So let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25 plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno. Call 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. Frank Bruno. He's your numero uno. It's a common sense recap of the big stories. It's Cats at Night on 77 WABC. Welcome back to the John Katz Matidis Cats at Night show. Now on the line for us, Steve Moore. He is a former President Trump's top economic advisor. You had a great analysis that you wrote recently. Majority of top Biden officials have zero business experience. Wow. No truer statement has ever been said. Pretty obvious with the state of the economy right now. Steve Moore, tell us all about it. Well, thanks for having me. And and you summarized it pretty well that there are the majority of the people in the top level uh, administration posts of the top 65 people deal with the economy, finance, commerce, uh, our money. Um, most of them have never, not only have they never started a business, they've never even worked for a business. So these are the kind of people you wouldn't want to, you know, to uh, hire to run a lemonade stand, let alone to try to uh, manage our economy. See, Steve, I, Ed Cox here, so, put aside the, the top officials on it. How about the president himself? How about the well, second exactly. most powerful? How about Sh- uh, Chuck Schumer, uh, the majority exactly. leader in the Senate? They have never done anything except run for office after they got out of law school. 
Yeah, you're 100% correct. And, and in fact, they were included in our study. I mean, Kamala Harris, you think she has any business experience? Uh, you know, you go look at the cabinet, look at Pete Buttigieg. He's the, he's the transportation secretary in charge of the dealing with the supply chain problems. Uh, you know, he, he doesn't know anything about transportation. You look at Jennifer Granholm. She's the energy secretary. She knows nothing, nothing about energy, except that she hates fossil fuels. I could go on and on. But, you know, when I was thinking about this, because this is the John Katz show, and what Biden needs is to bring in somebody like a John Katz who actually knows how to run something. I mean, he's been a successful businessman, and there's no one, very few people in this, in this White House that have the capacity to deal with the crisis that we have right now, which is, you know, the numbers just came out this morning, 11.1% producer price index. You know what that means. It means that consumer prices are going up again, because when business costs go up, guess what? Consumer costs go up as well. Steve, you were a, a, a prime economic advisor to uh, President uh, Trump, and uh, he was frustrated because he didn't get his tax cut. I think they dealt with Obamacare in the first part of his first year. But during that time, he did deregulation, did it big time. And in yeah. many ways, didn't he prove that it's as important as tax cuts to have deregulation? Yeah, and look, we did both. We finally did get our I'll never forget it was uh, it was uh, December of 2017, one week before uh Christmas. We finally got that tax bill passed. Uh so that was basically, you know, well into a year into his presidency. But I think it was the combination you know, the, how did we get the best economy ever for this country? And let's not forget, that's what we had under under Trump. It was because he was a businessman. He knew what the country needed. And we did the deregulation. We reduced eight regulations for every new regulation. And then we cut the taxes. We had a great economy. Biden's come in. He's reversed all those policies with his uh, war against American energy. We're three million barrels of energy produced per day short of where we should be. I, unfortunately, it feels like the wheels are coming off this economy right now. And it looks like the Fed's going to have to raise interest rates again, and that's going to slow down the economy. So we're, we're in a real danger zone. And the point of our study is there's nobody at home right now who knows anything about how to deal with a crisis like this. No, I mean, John Katzmatidis, I remember it very vividly. As soon as Biden shut down that Keystone pipeline, you said, watch, you're going to see gas prices go up. You also called it when you said you thought that they would level out the, and you called it. And so what's your next prediction, John Katzmatidis? Well, last week we called it when we said that oil has reached uh, peak price and it's coming down. Yeah. And that's when it hit 125, 130. And right now it's trying to go to 89. So uh, before the Fed decides to raise interest rates, I think they should look at it very carefully and, and not deal in hist- history, deal in what's going on today. What say you, yeah. Steve Moore? Well, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Commodity prices have come down. You're right about oil prices. I'm very concerned about the producer price index that came out today. But uh, I don't want to see the Fed overshoot. But we've got to get this inflation rate down. I mean, we're not going to see the economy return to any kind of prosperity until we get inflation down to the at least below 4%, which is still, you know, pretty high. We're, you know, we're at 9% right now. And by the way, people, yeah, but, when I tell but, people... But Steve, we could kill the whole economy if we raise interest rates... But inflation right now, we're we're stuck, John. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Steve Moore, for coming on. One of the top five economists in the country. Thank you so much. And thank you, uh, Judge Weinberg and uh, Ed Cox. Thank you. And Lydia Serrani. And uh, 
God bless, uh, God bless New York. God bless America. And what do we stand for, Lydia? Truth, Truth justice, justice, and, and the, the American, American way. way. Thank you so much.